northeast. I love being in Dolo and I particularly love being at King's. And I love getting to talk about identity. So it's like a perfect morning for me. So I don't mind giving you my last morning before holiday. We're going to talk about identity. We're going to talk about the question, who am I? Who am I is like one of the big kind of natural human questions, right? Something everyone kind of asks, everyone cares about. We want to know who we truly are. We know that by finding who we are and living out who we really are, that is the way we're going to find and experience our best life. Identity is really, really important for any human being. And actually, as the very first thing, it's worth here pausing and just asking, well, what do we talk about when we talk about identity? If you notice, identity is one of those words that is used all the time and these concepts employed all the time that we rarely stop to, we rarely, rarely think, stop, think to stop and think, what's it mean? What is identity? And often people mean wildly different things by it and start talking past each other. When I'm talking about identity today, here's how I like to summarize it. Our identity is our controlling self-understanding. It's our self-understanding, how we view ourselves, who we believe ourselves to be at our most core, our kind of most fundamental, what's most important about us. And that is controlling in the sense of who you really believe yourself to be deep down will inevitably have impacts on you. It will impact your thinking, your feeling, your living. In a sense, it has a controlling impact on us. And so when I'm talking about identity, I'm talking about our sense of self deep, deep down and the way that has an impact on us, our controlling self-understanding. And with that kind of um, concept of identity, that means there are lots of things that are true of us, but they're not our identity. Lots of things that describe us, that, but don't define us. And that's also a very helpful distinction to make. And in my life, identity has been a really big deal. In a sense, my three decades have, in some sense, is being three identity crises. We marked by three different identity crises. In my first decade, there was a time when I really came to believe I was a girl trapped in a boy's body. I remember it so vividly because I remember the fear that I would get pregnant, clearly not know how these things work, and that my big secret would be found out. I was having a crisis over the question, who am I? And actually, those feelings kind of naturally went away as I entered into my teen years, into adolescence. But then some new who am I questions emerged, because in my teenage years, I realized that the romantic and sexual attractions that were developing in me were for other guys rather than for girls. I realized that I'm gay or same-sex attracted or whatever language we want to use for that. And I was having to wrestle with, what does this mean for my identity? The world I was living in, our culture was telling me, well, that's who you are. The most important thing about you, you need to embrace that and express that to find your best life. But I knew the Bible taught me that actually, no, sex and marriage are reserved for lifelong unions of one man and one woman. And so actually, to cut the story short, I decided, no, I'm going to be single and celibate, not having sex, out of faithfulness to Jesus. But then people are saying to me, well, isn't God asking you to deny who you really are? Identity was a big issue for me around my sexuality, especially in my teenage years. And then I came into my 20s, and about halfway through my 20s, I had a series of fairly significant kind of mental health meltdowns, I guess. I was ended up in a pretty dark, low place in a pretty bad way, and various things kind of helped me in that uh, context, one of which was seeing a Christian counsellor. And one of the things I realized through just exploring what was going on in me by seeing this Christian counselor was that I had a really deeply unhealthy and destructive sense of self and sense of identity. And if you'd asked me who I was, I could have told you all the right good Christian answers, all the things God says in the word of God. But actually deep down, what I really believed about myself was that I was a freak and a weirdo. And I realized I didn't actually believe anyone liked or loved me. I didn't really like or love myself. I didn't really actually even believe that God liked or loved me. I was having to wrestle afresh with the question, who am I? 
And as I went through that season and I wrestled with who am I and what is God saying, how do I take hold of that? I found that there was wonderful freedom and life-giving good news and security to be received in what the Bible says to us about who we are. And that's something of what I want to communicate to us today. Who am I has been a huge question in my own life. But actually, as I look back now on those journeys of wrestling with that question, I actually realized there was a different question, a, a more fundamental question that needs to come first, which was really key. It wasn't who am I, it was how do I find who I am? You see, you can't answer the question, who am I, until you know how you're going to find who you are. And I tried different answers on that journey. Was I going to get my sense of self and find who I am based on what I felt inside, my, my gender, my feeling of being a girl or a boy, or, or based on my sexuality? Or was I going to get my sense of self from what other people thought of me? I had assumed that everyone genuinely thought that I was a freak and a weirdo, and I just absorbed it as my sense of self. Was I going to decide my own identity? Was I going to let other people decide my identity? Or actually, was I going to listen to what God says and allow God to decide my identity? How do I find who I am is actually the starting point and the question we often forget to ask, but we need to ask. Because all of us have an answer to it. All the time we're living out an answer to it. We just don't realize it often. We've not actually thought about it. And often the reason we don't experience who God says we really are is because we've not actually wrestled with this question of, well, how do I find who I am and am I getting my sense of self from the right place? And so that's what I want to help us to wrestle with this morning. We're going to take a brief moment to look at two ways that the world around us encourages us to answer that question. And we're going to see how that works and some of the problems with those. And we're going to clear the ground to then say, well, what does God say? What does the Bible say? What's the good news that God has for us? So how do I find who I am? Here are two answers from the world in which you and I are living in today in the modern West. One probably really prominent answer is that others decide. How do I find who I am? Others decide. My sense of self is built on what other people think of me. Or at least what I assume they think of me, because let's be honest, we often don't actually know for sure what people think of us. This starts with the assumption that there's this kind of set of criteria, this set of uh, kind of rules or uh, markers that people are evaluating us against. It could be literally like a, a written law code somewhere. Often it's just like this set of expectations that are just generally assumed in a culture or in a context. And the idea is that people kind of make a judgment of, of us against these criteria, and we then receive that and we kind of absorb that as our sense of self. We become shaped by the views of others, that other, the views that other people have of us. And I think you often see this at working celebrities, perhaps unsurprisingly. I guess if you live in the public eye, it's easy to let the opinion of others shape your sense of self. One example would be Madonna. Here's some words from Madonna in an interview quite a few years ago. She said, I want to make a mark on the world. I want to be a somebody because I grew up feeling like a nobody. What does she mean she wants to be a somebody? I think she means she wants people to think well of her. She wants to, I don't know, be impressive or just be thought of as a good person or a successful person. And she wants that because she grew up being a nobody. She felt like people didn't think that of her. She wants her sense of self to be shaped by the opinions of others, people to think well of her. You can see it often in celebrities, but all of us are susceptible to this. And there's all kinds of different areas of life in which this might come into play. It might be that for us, it's in our work or our employment, if we're employed, that we're really good at what we do, or that we're in a really well-respected career. We think people think well of me because I'm really good at my job, or they're really impressed with my job, and it gives us a sense of self and a sense of worth and value. 
or it could be about education. Maybe we're the best student at school or college or university, or maybe we're the best sports person or artist at, or in our okay, education context. And again, it's people think well of me because I'm good at this. I'm the best at this. We're absorbing from other people a sense of self and a sense of worth. Or it can be a whole load of kind of more general things, just a desire to be known as kind or generous or just a good person. And all of those are good things to aspire to, but actually they become a problem. They become our identity if they become our controlling self-understanding. The core way we view ourselves and the thing that we are pursuing is so easy for us to let other people shape our sense of self. It's so easy, and yet also I think it's so problematic. There's big problems with this way of doing things. You see, if you let other people shape your sense of self, you can very easily end up with an unhealthy, destructive identity. There's no guarantee that people are going to think well of you. There's no guarantee it's going to be a good identity. People can think well of us, so they can also think badly of us, and that can really backfire on us. And often we don't really know what people think of us. This is what happened to me when I thought I was a freak and a weirdo. I genuinely thought that's what everyone thought. I thought, obviously, there's these kind of criteria for what a normal person is like, and my likes and dislikes, my personality, my looks, all these things I kind of thought meant I fall short on these criteria. Obviously, everyone thinks this, and so I absorbed it as my sense of self. And others' desired identity can easily be really destructive, really harmful, really unhealthy. But even if it does give you a good sense of identity for a time, there's always some crushing insecurity. People might think, well, of you now, but what if they change their mind? You might be doing pretty well at something now, so people are impressed, but what if you make a big mistake and suddenly people's opinion of you changes? It's crushing insecurity because you never rest certain this is going to be okay and it's going to stay as it is. And linked to that, there's huge pressure here. This is basically an identity you're making way there's pressure to can I live up to the criteria can I keep going I've got to keep up the act so people keep thinking well of me that's exhausting and can any of us really do that all the time others decide is really common really popular in the world we're living in it's also really not very good news it's not very helpful for us we want to try something else so there's another answer our culture offers us the world we're living in how do I find who I am I decide that's another common popular answer in our world, that the most important thing about us is what we find inside. Who you really are is your feelings and your desires, the things you find inside of yourself. And therefore, nothing outside matters. Your body doesn't matter. Other people, traditions, religions, none of these things matter. What matters is who you are inside. And you need to embrace that and express that to find your best life. And I call that I decide because it's I who look inside, it's I who look and find what's there, it's I who embrace that and make that my identity. And this really is all over the place in the world you and I are living in. It's encapsulated in those kind of cheesy inspirational slogans you might see on a pretty background on Instagram, or I kind of think it's the kind of thing you find on the wall in a cheap coffee shop somewhere. Something like, always stay true to yourself and never sacrifice who you are for anyone. Or never change who you are because someone else has a problem with it. It's saying you find you inside and ignore everything else. You see it in popular media, you see it in song lyrics, in TV, in films. There are loads of examples I could give you, but let me give you the quintessential example, and I confess, a film I love. The quintessential example is Princess or Queen Elsa in Frozen. Elsa is one of the great heroes of our day because she bravely embraces what she finds inside, scorning everything outside, and she lets out, she lets it go. 
She embraces these magical powers she has inside. She defies the attempts of people outside her and around her to get her to suppress that and keep quiet about that and to hide that. And the whole story of the film is telling us that suppressing what you feel inside is a really bad thing. In this case, it leads to an eternal winter for Arendelle. But it's telling us that when you embrace who you really are inside and you let that out, everything is wonderful. Summer returns to Arendelle and there's a new age of open doors at the palace. It's an Eidicide narrative. And actually that is perfectly kind of a encapsulated in the famous song from this film, Let It Go. And one of the reasons Let It Go was such phenomenon when it came out is because it tapped right into one of the key narratives of the culture that you and I are living in. She's talking about no longer being the good girl other people want her to be, no longer living with an others-decide identity, living up to their expectation, but now embracing who she really is, letting it out, letting it go, this swirling, storming side. It's all about what's inside of her. It's an I-decide narrative. It's all over the place in popular media. But then in real life, it gets applied as well. The most common areas in our culture gets applied, although there are others as well, would be to experiences of gender and sexuality. In our culture, we're told if you look inside yourself and you feel like a woman, even if you've got a male body, then you are a woman. What really matters is what you feel, not what your body says or what other people say. When it comes to sexuality, we're told that actually your sexual desires are your identity, the most important thing about you. You need to embrace that. You need to express that in order to um, find your best life. So people like me who are saying, no, faithfulness to Jesus, I'm not going to act on my same-sex desires because of what I believe about God's plan for sex and sexuality. People say, well, you're denying who you really are. These things have become identity in our culture. It's because we're told to look inside ourselves to find who we are. Such a common thing in our culture. But again, I think it's such a problematic thing. One problem here is there's, again, huge pressure. This narrative tells you only you can know who you are. No one can tell you. No one can help you work that out. Only you can know who you are. And if you don't find out, you don't live that out, you're going to miss out on your best life. A bit of pressure. And I'm convinced one of the reasons we're seeing such a mental health crisis among younger people is in part because of this huge pressure they have to work out who they are and no one can help them and the stakes are so high. And it's so hard to find who we are because often it's not clear. Let's be honest, we look inside ourselves, there's a whole mess of stuff, right? Feelings and desires conflict and contradict which one's the real me. How do I actually work out who I am when I look inside of me? You've got the problem that sometimes we embrace what's inside, ignoring anything outside, and we cause unintended harm. Actually, we're told that we need to sacrifice everything to be true to ourselves inside, regardless of the impact. So if I find that I've got a, I don't know, a strong entrepreneurial spirit, that's who I really am. I've got to be true to myself. And I put all of my time and my energy and my money into my business. When in the process, my friendships and my spouse, maybe if I've got a spouse, my children, if I've got children are going to suffer, my own health quite likely will suffer. Often there's unintended consequences for external things when we just go with what we find inside of ourselves. And actually the big issue here is that ultimately none of us actually believe it. We're all ultimately inconsistent on this because we all know there are some feelings we might find inside, some desires we might find inside where none of us are going to go, yes, you do you, that's who you are, you be true to yourself. The reality is we pick and choose actually based on what our culture tells us to pick and choose. We don't actually even believe it. It doesn't work. So either side doesn't work as a way of making identity. Others decide doesn't work as a way of making identity. We need a better answer. We need a different answer. And wonderfully, that's what the word of God gives us.
It's not that other people get to decide who I am. Not that I get to decide who I am. It's that God decides who I am. In God decides identity, our identity, our controlling self-understanding, our sense of self is shaped by what God says about us, about our relationship with our creator, which kind of makes sense, doesn't it? If we are created by the creator, it makes sense that he would tell us who we are. And this identity is received. It's like receiving a gift. In others decide, you're achieving the identity, you're performing to earn it. In I decide, you're kind of discovering or making your own identity. In God decides, you're just receiving it as a gift from your loving creator. And this, I think, is the approach we see throughout scripture. It's one of those things, it's kind of never explicitly stated in the Bible, because it's just everywhere taken for granted that who we are is who God says we are based on our relationship with him. I think you see it nicely illustrated in the life of Jesus. Jesus' sense of self and sense of worth weren't based on what people thought about him, which is a good thing because they're quite mixed opinions. And it wasn't based on anything he found inside. It was based on what God the Father said about him. And actually, we get these beautiful uh, kind of pictures in the Gospels of that happening, pictures of how God decides identity is meant to work. At both Jesus' baptism and also the transfiguration, you get that voice coming from heaven and declaring who Jesus is. When Jesus is baptized, put under the water and brought up again in Mark 1, Mark 1, 11, this voice comes from heaven saying, you are my beloved son, with you I'm well pleased. In Mark 9, at the transfiguration, again, this voice comes from heaven, this is my beloved son. It's God declaring who Jesus is, the Father declaring who Jesus is, and Jesus kind of absorbs that and lets that shape his sense of self. It's God decides identity. And God decides identity, the best identity or the kind of true identity we have is received through the work of Jesus. There's an identity we get to receive through what Jesus has done, what we can call Christian identity, which is the very best identity we could ever, ever receive and can lead us into and help us to live the very best life we could ever experience. And this is something Paul the Apostle talks about, one of the early church leaders in uh, Ephesians 2, a letter to a church or maybe a few churches around ancient Ephesus. And in Ephesians 2, Paul tells us about the gospel, the good news of the Christian message, as it were, in the key of identity. It is a story of transformed identity and the invitation God makes to us to receive a new identity from him. He actually starts Ephesians 2, in a sense, with the bad news, with a bad identity that we all start with because we all start our life in rebellion against God. Here's what he says in the first few verses of Ephesians 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this out of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Paul knows that we all start our lives with our hearts turned away from God. We all start our lives in rebellion against God, falling short of his standards, that's what the word sin means, and ultimately, basically, we fail to treat God as God. We fail to give our God and our creator the thanks and the honor and the worship that he is rightly deserving of. And the result of that is that all of us start with a really bad identity. Look what Paul says. He says that we're sons of disobedience in verse 2. We're children of wrath in verse 3. Wrath is God's just and fair punishment of sin. Ultimately, he says we're dead. Verse 1, we're spiritually dead. That's who we are outside of Christ. 
This is the bad news. It's the bad news of what life is like when we are in rebellion against God or who we are outside of Christ. And it's where we all start. It's where we should all stay. But God, but God acts. And Paul goes on, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. This is the transformation of identity that God offers to us. And that comes when we choose to trust in Jesus and choose to follow him. A transformation from the worst possible identity to the best possible identity. We once were dead, spiritually dead, but now he says we're made alive, verse 5. We were once children of wrath, receiving the just punishment for our sin, but now we are saved from wrath. And now we are seated in heavenly places with God himself, Paul says in verse 6. There's an utter transformation of who we are. And notice really importantly, all of this happens through the work of Christ, through what God has done in sending his son. This isn't about getting our act together and acting a certain way, doing some good stuff to get a better identity. It's not about looking inside of ourselves to find a different identity or make a different identity. It's about receiving identity, not based on what we do or have done, but all based on what Christ has done, the finished work of Christ. And because it's based on what Christ has done, a finished job, it is solid and static and stable. And all we have to do is reach out in faith to receive this gift. And there are two things in those few verses we just read where Paul is making this point of this is all about what Jesus has done, not about what you do. One is he talks about this idea of being in Christ. One of Paul the Apostle's kind of favorite concepts, this idea you're united with, you're hidden with Christ. If this is Jesus and this is you, you are in Jesus. And so when God sees you, he sees you covered and clothed in Jesus. So everything that's true of Jesus now is true of you. We are in Christ. Oh, when I think of this concept, I sometimes think of um, morph suits. You might have a picture of a morph suit somewhere. Um, a morph suit is this kind of brightly colored, colored uh, outfit where you're covered in the whole thing. You get zipped up inside and every bit of the person is covered in the morph suit. And you look at the person and the morph suit and you can see the person, but you can't see the person and not also see the morph suit. They're so enclosed in this morph suit that you see them and you see them, but you can't not also see them enclosed in the morph suit. If you're a Christian, God sees you. He sees you as you in all your uniqueness and all the wonderful ways he's made you, but he sees you clothed in Christ. He can't see you and not also see Christ because you are in Christ and therefore everything that is Christ's become yours. Christ is the basis of this new identity. And so all those blessings Paul's just talked about come in Christ. He says we're made alive together with Christ, verse five. We're seated in heavenly places in Christ, verse 6. He shows the immeasurable riches of his kindness to us in Christ Jesus, verse 7. It's all based on the work of Christ because we are united to him. And the second motif actually he uses for this is the grace of God. He says, by grace, we have been saved. Grace is like the foundation for our new identity. And what is grace? Well, Paul handed explains it for us in verse 7. He says it's kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. And remember, who are the us in Christ Jesus? It's us who were spiritually dead, children of wrath, sons of disobedience. Grace is a gift given, but it's a gift given to those who are utterly undeserving. 
That's what Paul means when he talks about grace, a gift given to those who are utterly undeserving. We've received a gift. So this isn't like a a gift from your best mate. This is a gift from someone you've wronged and hurt and offended and been acting against. It's a gift you should never deserve. You could never deserve. And yet a gift which the giver out of his own love and goodness and mercy freely chooses to give. It's a gift God can give us because of what he's done in sending his son. Because Jesus died on the cross, because the punishment of our sins was placed on Jesus, so it doesn't have to be placed on us. God can give this gift to us even when we're utterly undeserving. Christian identity is based fully and completely on the work of Christ, not based on what we do or based on how we feel. And Paul brings this to a close and kind of summarizes this story of transformed identity in verses eight onwards. For by grace you have been saved. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so no one may boast. Jesus, good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in. He says we're saved, we receive this new identity by grace, God's gift to the undeserving through faith. Our trust in God is the thing that takes hold of this gift. We don't earn it through performance as we do in others' decided identity. We don't create it by looking inside ourselves as we do in our decided identity. We receive it as a gift from God. And notice really importantly, the last little thing Paul chucks in there is that now we live on the basis of this identity. He says in verse 10, we now are God's new creations. We are God's workmanship created to do good works that God has prepared for us to do. You see how we live now flows out of who we are. You don't live a certain way to become this kind of person. It's not how you live flowing into who you are. It's you know who you are, a gift you've received, And now how you live flows out of that. It reverses things. It changes things from our expectations. And whereas previously we walked in trespasses and sins, rebelling against God, now we walk in the good works that God has prepared for us. We live out this identity. And as we look at Paul's story there, transformed identity, you can probably really begin to see why this is so much better than an others decide identity or an I decide identity it releases us from pressure, for one thing. There's no pressure to perform. It's not about how you act, it's about what Christ has done. There's no pressure to work out from the mess of stuff inside yourself, who am I? Because God tells you who you are, we just receive it. There's a releasing from pressure. There's also freedom from insecurity. Christian identity is secure because it's based on the finished work of Christ, and that's not going to change. It's based on what God the Father thinks of God the Son and what he's done, and that's not going to change. It's not like an other side identity where you might make a big mistake and it could come crashing down. It's not like an either side identity where your feelings and desires might change and it could all have to change. It's solid and static. There's security in this identity. I can know that I am loved by God. I can know that I'm a child of God with a security. I think really importantly and really helpfully, a God-decided identity allows us to engage healthily with our feelings and our desires. You see, in an others-decided identity, you're basically having to kind of ignore and suppress and push down what you find inside to live up to the expectations of other people. In an I-decided identity, you just indiscriminately embrace good or bad for you, which is a pretty unhealthy. She God decides identity allows us to say, I can recognize and acknowledge my feelings and my desires. And I can say, well, what does God say about those? 
How does God call me to respond to those, to steward those, to um, live out in light of those? And particularly when we come to those big topics of things like sexuality and gender, that's so important. I'm not controlled by what I feel inside. I'm not controlled by my desires. Actually, I want to be controlled in a sense, or I want to be led and guided by my creator, God. What does he say about these things? I can step back, I can acknowledge them. I can choose how to respond to them. Other society, I decide that it's a really unhealthy relationship to our feelings and our desires. God decides, gives us the healthy basis to which to engage with them well. Christian identity as a, an outworking of God decides identity is truly the very best identity we could ever receive or experience. It's sort of static, it's stable, it's life-giving. And the wonderful news is, if you are here today and you're a Christian, you're someone who's chosen to follow Jesus, this is already true of you. Your Christian identity is already true and secure. Everything I've said of this transformation has happened to you. That's the wonderful good news. And yet it might be that for some of us here, it's true that this is true of us, but actually we're not experiencing it. Sometimes actually what is true of us isn't something we are yet experiencing. We have to take hold of what God says is true. We have to step into what is true to actually experience all the goodness of that. It's really worth just thinking about, actually, are we getting our identity from God or are we at risk of getting it from other people or from ourselves by looking inside of ourselves? And worth just being aware, actually, what, which way am I most likely to go? And worth thinking, actually, what are the, the lies about my identity, the things that maybe people have said over me or that I've assumed about myself that I easily believe about myself that aren't what God says. It's really important to get good at spotting those and knowing those. And there are two steps I think we need to take to practically respond to this if we're a follower of Jesus. One is that we do need to know the truth. We do need to get to know what God says about us as Christians. The reality is you can't experience this if you don't know it. And so get into the word of God. See, what does God say in the Bible about who we now are as his followers, as those in Christ? If you don't know where to start, ask a Christian friend or ask one of the leaders here, where should I start reading the Bible? Where can I learn about who I am in the Bible we need to know the truth. We will never grow in experiencing, enjoying our identity in Christ if we don't get into this gift of a book that God has given us. We need to know the truth, but then we also need to live the truth. We need to take proactive steps to experience it. It's about moving it from the head where we understand it to the heart where we actually experience it and feel it and take hold of it in life. That means these aren't just things to kind of know as a checklist. They're truths to meditate on. That means like chewing over them. It's like chewing over food to get out all the goodness, all the taste, all the nutrients. We want to meditate on these. We want to pray these truths, give them thanks for our identity, ask them that God would make it real to our hearts. And again, chewing it over as we do so. We want to sing these truths. I'm convinced when we sing things, they get deeper into us. Find some good Christian songs that declare who you are in Christ. And take some time regularly to sing them, to work this truth into your heart. This takes time. It takes a deliberate choice, but what happens step by step by step is it works deeper and deeper into our hearts and we begin to experience the reality of who we are in Christ. For a Christian here today, this is true of us. If that is. With the band come up at this point, please. But maybe you're here today and you're not actually a Christian. Maybe actually it's your first time here. Maybe you've been here many times, but actually you've not yet made that choice to follow Jesus. And maybe as we've looked at God's word together, you're realizing, I think Ephesians 2 describes me. Maybe you're realizing you're not yet experiencing this wonderful good identity. 
empty because you're still living a life of rejecting God, of walking away from God, of not relating to him with thanksgiving and obedience. Friend, if that's you here today, the good news is that this uh, wonderful offer of Christian identity is made to you today. This gift of Christian identity is offered to you today. God, it's like his hands are extended, longing to give this to you, if you will just take hold of it. The Bible says all we have to do is we turn away from a life of rejecting Jesus. It's what the Bible calls repentance. We do a 180 away from a life of rejecting him. And instead, we choose to trust him, trust that he's going to accept us, and we seek to live his ways, empowered by his spirit. And we receive this new identity and we get to live out. We get to live knowing that we're a child of God, loved, accepted, delighted over, and that is solid and secure. It can never change. That we get to live that out and now live out the good works that he has prepared for us. Friend, if you're not a follower of Jesus here today, this can become true of you today. Don't leave here without taking the opportunity to take hold of this and to experience this into this new life. Again, talk to someone, maybe someone who brought you, talk to someone who looks friendly, talk to one of the leaders. People would love to tell you about Jesus and if you want to, help you respond to follow him. Well, we're going to take a moment just now to worship together as a chance to reflect on the truth we've heard. To let the Spirit of God settle it in our hearts. To think maybe, what am I going to do this week to proactively step into this identity?